Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Not Drinking Poison podcast. My name is Aaron Aiskoff, and at the moment we're in series two of the Not Drinking Poison podcast, which is entitled Contemporary Paris Natural Wine, where I'm speaking to friends throughout the Paris natural wine scene who've got their fingers on the pulse of what's going on today. Today I'm here in the 19th arrondissement of Paris at uh, not a new restaurant, but a newly transformed restaurant with Chrislin Medina. Hi, Chrislin. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank Very so excited for, to be here. for agreeing to meet. Big um, fan. Oh, and likewise, me, me, me of your work here in Paris. Uh, Le Cheval d'Or, uh, it's been around for a while. Uh, it was a historical Chinese restaurant in Paris, and then a few years ago it was taken over by our friend Florent Chicoli. Uh, and, exactly. uh, and as of August, Chris Lem with her partners Nadim, her husband the chef Luis Andrade, and also the chef de cuisine Hans Gecko, mm-hmm. uh, took over Cheval d'Or. And I've really injected a new life into the space. And um, I really wanted to talk to Chrislyn today because I think she's got a very, very particular entry uh, into and experience of the natural wine scene in Paris. I, I mean, I would consider myself something of an outsider myself, but how about you? <laughs> yeah, I've always felt that. And I've always kind of uh, flourished in, as being an outsider, but um, I guess that's what got me into wine in the first place. <laughs> um, but ha- it has been quite the journey. And in my view, and I guess everyone will probably feel this way, but unlike many of my peers. Mm-hmm. You hadn't planned to begin working in wine, right? Not at all. Um, it kind of naturally happened when I was looking for, for a job. I went to, I started working at People, which is a, a small restaurant in historical Fifth Arrondissement of Paris, where kind of a natural wine fell into my lap for free. Um, winemakers used to deliver themselves, so you know, Jean Foyard, uh, Pierre Breton. George Descombe used to be there George quite, Descombe often. Every, yeah. quite often. Quite um, often. Yeah. <laughs> I have several pictures of him falling asleep <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on, our, on our banquettes. One of the, one um, of the, one of the, the greatest narcoleptics of the Beaujolais. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we go. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's where I had my first glass of Yvonne Metra, and that changed pretty much my perspective on drinking overall. It's funny because I, mean, I, I think very, very long-time readers of Not Drinking Poison might, uh, might, might remember Les Pipos. I think I used to write about it really back when I was writing on Blogspot mm-hmm. uh, as a platform back in the day before the ownership changed. I mean, this would have been around the time you were working there. Exactly. Um, I actually, you wrote something a year, like almost a year before I started working oh, there. So, okay. um, and, I, and I used to read, I started reading your blog short time after that. Yeah. And so actually you had stayed in Alain's memory. He knew you. <laughs> and so it was really funny because at the time you were kind of like this mystical figure who was very honest about very, his... Uh, uh, very opinionated. Very opinionated, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, when I finally met you at the rigmarole, it kind mm. of, you know, popped that that, that, that <laughs> mysticism when I got to know you in person. But the, the honesty is still there. <laughs> I, I had a really embarrassing scene or, or memory once at, at, at the people's because I was there and it, it wasn't, I don't think it was the night of Beaujolais Nouveau or something. It was just a normal night, but we were hanging out with my friends and I'd ordered a bottle of Georges Deco, I mm-hmm. think. And we ended up sending it back because it was corked. And I think the server wasn't, it wasn't Elan, the owner at the time, but like the server was like, oh, I don't think it's corked. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's corked. I mean, I was, I was dead set on it was corked. And then later I get up to use the bathroom and I see Georges Deco himself at the bar finishing the bottle finishing I just sent back. back. <laughs> I mean, which... Yeah, I, I guess I can't argue with that, but... <laughs> it doesn't mean it's still, it was in court. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I only learned that later when living in the Beaujolais. That doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that. <laughs> yeah. But so, yes, yeah, so the people is a place that's uh, very, very close to both of our hearts. Yeah. Yes, yeah. dearly. <laughs> I haven't been back in a while, but I think about it all the time. And it really set the stage for a lot of the things I'm doing today. 
And I, now, when, when we first met later, I, I, was, I remember being amazed by your incredible American accent. And then, of course, it, now, now I learned that you're actually basically, you know, you grew up mostly in America. Is that right? Yes. So I spent 17 years in the States, basically in the Northeast, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. But I'm originally from Cabo Verde in West Africa. Mm-hmm. in the Atlantic, so it's an archipelago, a bit isolated. But... Near Senegal. Yes, about yeah. 580 kilometers west of Senegal. Okay. What brought you to Paris in that case? I came to Paris, like everything in my life, it was kind of, you know, um, not improvised. planned, yeah. <laughs> improvised. Uh, I was in my last year of, of high school, and I learned that I wouldn't be able to go to university in the States. Um, I was actually illegal there for 17 years. Now I can openly and happily talk about it. Um, so I had to find a school to go to, and I decided this is an opportunity to kind of leave and explore the world and go somewhere new and start over. Um, so I, I picked Paris, and I applied to the American University of Paris, got in, and came here for my literature and politics studies. I, I can completely understand the direct line from studying literature to going into working in restaurants. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I <laughs> love telling Same stories. Thing exactly. Yeah. So, and that was my connection. Um, when I got the job as a server, as a waitress at People, that was my main job was to make the connection and, and tell a story and, and get people to try these wines that, you know, were a bit atypical, uh, not what you're and I, and I served a lot of tourists, so it wasn't what they were looking for. So it needed a bit of explanation. And I, I loved doing that. I loved bridging the gap um, and sharing the stories of winemakers. And that's what got me closer to wine. Um, I realized they, those winemakers in particular were outsiders as well in their communities in a way. And I've always been kind of that underdog and outsider. And being in France, not speaking the language well, working in a restaurant in the fifth arrondissement, <laughs> I was usually the only kind of something all the time. Um, so it was my connection, it was my niche. Um, it was something I can grab hold of and actually explain well. And then having the winemakers come themselves quite often really touched me. Um, because when you, when you could put a face to a wine, it, it really changed a lot for me, especially since I could not at the time afford and I didn't have the opportunities to go to wineries and visit the winemakers myself and understand the winemaking process. So having them present at people really changed things for me. Yeah, it's definitely like a, a huge advantage of working in restaurants in Paris. It's the, you know, the tips are terrible, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but you do get a lot of face time with the winemakers. Yeah, you're close to the source yeah. and it's, it's really fun. Um, mm. You don't get much sleep, <laughs> yeah. but it's really fun. And did you find when, you know, first starting out, particularly in, you know, kind of a touristy arrondissement, did you find people were resistant to listening to you about wine simply because you weren't like this white French person? Definitely. Like yeah. it, it, uh, I've, I've had a lot of people ask to speak to another person at the restaurant, and that happens throughout my entire career. Like, Even can at I the speak rigmarole. To the old white man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even at the rigmarole, oftentimes people would say, Can you have Robert choose the wine? When, mm-hmm. We can say openly, and Robert, you know this, Jess even tastes better than Robert. You know, and so if, if you go in terms of who has the better palate or who can actually talk we'll about you that. On that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it was, it's, it's always happened, but I like those kinds of challenges, and I like pe- proving people wrong, so that really helped me. And working in a very old-school, traditional bistro really gave me the competence level to be able to do a great job in the future restaurants I worked in. And having not started in a very trendy Parisian restaurant was really helpful, actually. Because I came into, you know, the Rigmarole was really the first restaurant I worked in that 
had that kind of attention. I wasn't used yeah, to it. You know, I was fine dining lineage. Fine dining yeah. lineage, and you know where the food community would go all the time. So it was. I was in that environment for the first time. We can say in 2017. Before yeah. that, so all very the very recent. Really. Yeah, it's it's yeah. actually it's very recent, very new. Um, I had a really big opportunity when to. We can be honest. I wasn't quite ready for it, and that, in a sense, was good too because it put me outside of my comfort zone and gave me a challenge, and I was up for it. Mm-hmm. And the community was very accepting and welcoming at the same time of my vision and what I was trying to share, and that that gave me a lot of motivation, and it was amazing. Yeah. And you were there at uh, the Rigmarole for a little over two years? Yes, mm-hmm. just about two years. And in terms of, you, you mentioned your, your, your vision with the wine program there. What were you, what were you, how would you describe it? At the Rigmarole, my vision was basically putting things I love to drink on the menu. <laughs> uh, so I really a didn't have... vision. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't really have a really great notion of maybe budgeting or what we could put for Gaud to open three years later. Or, you know, I, I, it wasn't very balanced. All I wanted to do was share these wines I loved with as many people as possible and Robert just thankfully just let me do it so they, they didn't really give me um, you know a lot of barriers you know it was basically if you like this and you know how to sell it go for it so it really helped me curate a list that reflected my personality and my journey in wine so my first my first tactic was contacting the winemakers I knew and that had always supported me and that were always there. So the and first, some of the first people, yeah. Jean Foyard, yeah. uh, Pierre Breton, mm-hmm. uh, all of the people I worked with at People, but specifically Jean Foyard, he hand delivered my first order and gifted us some bottles of wine and came and ate. And every restaurant I've always worked at, he's always come. Yeah. So he's one of those figures that even, you know, sometimes I, I, I serve some guests and they're like, oh, Jean Foyard is too classic. I'm like, yes, that's why we're going to drink it. Because then it sets the stage for everything else I want you to try tonight. So I love um, honoring history in the past. I think it's really important. The more we learn about wine, the better we get at winemaking and serving wine and curating lists. I think it's always important to remember where we came from mm-hmm. and how it started. I think, in, you know, among your generation, or you know, and uh, I'm not talking in terms of age. I'm talking in terms of uh, in terms of when you kind of came into the Paris restaurant scene. That's a, a rare perspective in your generation, in the sense that I think uh, it's much more common these days among the kind of the buzzy hype restaurants in Paris and the sommeliers who are really on the younger side to be more kind of uh, about the schism, you know, between between old school natural winemakers and between the, the mm. new school, as you might call them. I share it in the sense that it was the perspective I tried to take with uh, the world of natural wine with the book I wrote, uh, which which is, you know, really trying to give props where they're due to this, you know, pioneering generation of people mm-hmm. like Jean Foyard and Lapierre and uh, Descombe and, those, you know, and Breton yeah. and all these people uh, who did kind of help create the market for exactly. the, the more radical and un- But then we don't want to forget, like, that came afterwards. we don't want to stay there either. And that's why, for me, it's so important. I'm 38 years old. This is our first restaurant. I don't want only my vision there. I think what made somewhere like the Rigmarole special is the fact that Robert and Jessica were willing to collaborate with me on that and accept my vision. And I've, that's the first thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to be the quote unquote head sum here at Cheval d'Or because there are so many passionate wine professionals nowadays that are that live eat sleep wine you know mm-hmm. i'm happy with the fact that i have a family i have a restaurant to look after i have a team to look after so having taiki um here to kind of 
bring his vision of wine, but to have me as support yeah. is really important to me. The pedagogical aspect um, and having that support system to me, I think, is so important for him to be able to express himself. And like is, your is our sommelier yeah, here yeah. at Cheval d'Or. And also for us to be able to like make guests happy, because at the end of the day, you're trying to you know tell stories, make people happy, introduce them to wines that they've never tried or something they'll really like. And to be able to do that, it's all about really teamwork and also accepting that I'm not in it anymore directly. You know, Taiki, he's he's in the wine bars every like more often than me. He's talking to everyone. He's going to all the tastings, and I think it's so important to be able to accept that because let's be honest, if I'm going to create a list. You'll, you could tell it, it's only me, but when it's both of us, you have Taiki's vision, you have my vision, it, it's magic, it's special. Um, and I think that's important. And that's something that I, I personally never had. I've always built lists based on things I've tried and very limited experiences. Unfortunately, I've never been able to spend as much time as I would have wished in the vineyards. And I think that's so important. So we try to, we try to kind of give what we weren't given. Um, and that goes for me just like it goes for Luis and his kitchen experience and Nadim and his experience in hospitality. It's all about, you know, us creating a space here at Cheval d'Or, not only for our guests, but also for our team. Mm-hmm. You were saying you haven't managed to visit uh, you know, as many regions as possible. Do you, do you get to travel much these days? Are you able to? Or um, the, that's the goal. Well, with the opening of Cheval d'Or, yeah. not much, but Taiki, yes. yes. So uh, we've been open since August. He's already visited several wineries. He's yeah. done the Vendange. Um, we prioritize that. So yeah, making time for that. Making time for that is, for me, is uh, extremely important, as as it is important for our kitchen team to be able to, you know, travel to eat or, you know, do a stage wherever they want. It's not all about us spending all our time in this one space. And I think that's what's important about evolving and kind of paying attention to what's happened in the past and our experiences and saying, okay, even though today we're strong because of that, it doesn't mean it was the best way to do it. How can we do it a little better? And how can we give support? For me, I want Taiki to be autonomous. Um, I want Cheval d'Or I don't want to be indispensable, um, as we've been taught in the restaurant industry. Uh, The opposite. I want people to come here and be like, who should I talk to about wine? Mm -hmm. You know, there's Taiki, there's Chris. So that's what's fun is that we don't have a service where it's, oh, I'm just going to send you Taiki. No. All right. I think this is more your kind of, you know, guest, Chris, or you know more information about these kinds of... And it's not not a huge wine program here. No, no, not at all. We're starting... We're also starting from zero. Yeah, Yeah, we have about 40 references. It's kind of like Rig Rule 2.0 because, um, you know, I, I left... The rigmarole, I, I didn't, I'm not a planner as you guys know me, um, so I haven't been buying wine or for the last four years to open mm-hmm. my restaurant, for example. So this opportunity came up, we took it, we ran with it, and together we're building this. Yeah. So this is just as much everyone on our team's wine program as it is mine. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what's exciting about it. I still get excited when we get emails from a certain winemakers saying, yeah. okay, next season, we don't have any more wine, but yeah. yes, and that's exciting. and. It's exciting for me because so many of our peers expect to come here and find this like badass list because Chris has been, no, actually, no, it's very humble. It's starting from zero um, and you guys have to help us build it. But I did notice uh, on my visit here last month or a month before that uh, it's it's more, I would say, international than many lists in Paris. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, just tons of Burgundy and Champagne. No, no, definitely not. We, We love 
that kind of diversity. We, I want to bring even more international references. I love kind of bringing to light wine regions that we don't expect to think about. In the next couple of months, we'll be bringing in some Lebanese references. I come where I was born in Cape Verde. Um, there are vineyards, there's wine. So I always have this uh, far away dream and thought that one day I'll see a Cape Verdean wine on our menu, for example. So it's also about kind of doing away with um, boundaries and making the world smaller. Because, you know, when, you ha- when you're sitting in Paris and having a wine uh, from Hungary or having a wine from the Czech Republic or from Chile, I think that's special. Like the story traveling and thinking about the deconstruction of barriers and, you know, equating wine to just certain regions and certain winemaking processes. I think that's, that's over and people are open to new things. And we want to bring light to that here because it's kind of a reflection of our whole restaurant. We have a Chinese-French fusion restaurant. There's not one Chinese person in here. You know, so it's a message we're trying to and relay. very few French people, as you mentioned. And very one yeah. French person on the team. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a reflection of who we are and, yeah. and how we operate here and, and the fact that we're, we're very um, interested in a lot of others, everything that's different or that's not expected. I think it's also one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to, with you today is that, is that in, this, in the sense that, that a restaurant... Um, could succeed in Paris at the end of 2023 without a majority French wine list and without uh, without many French people in there and without like a, a particular particularly uh, you know convincing ethnic identity. That's a relatively new phenomenon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it is new and 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 it was a risk. We we definitely asked ourselves that question: How are people going to take it? And then we sat and we were like, but why are we beating ourselves over the head if if an American person were to go to New York, as a lot of them do, and open French restaurants. No one really like questions. Or Chinese that. restaurants. Or Chinese or restaurants or any other restaurant. No yeah. one really. Yeah. But we were kind of, you know, nervous about that. But um, again, I think Paris. What we're doing here, Paris kind of needed because, you know, if I want to drink great French wines, like I know where to go. There are great. We're, we're so lucky in this city it's a very it's a small city where there are so many great restaurants and so many great sommeliers and so many great wine professionals that you know we're also trying to bring something to the table that will make your experience different and that will give you a breath of fresh air so the international wine menu and food offering is just normal for us yeah we're four we're four partners and all of us are from completely different parts of the world so Mm. nadim is Palestinian, Luis and I are Cape Verdean, um, Hans is Filipino, born in Australia. So that alone, you know, when we sit around a table, whatever we choose to eat and drink is, is diverse, yeah, you know? Yeah. So this place is really a, a reflection of who we are and how mm-hmm. we operate together. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why it's probably new and or less common in Paris to have such wine lists or such menus either is that Paris, of course, for, for any high-end restaurant, for any ambitious restaurant, let's say, there's going to be a certain reliance on some tourist traffic. Mm-hmm. And generally, when tourists are visiting Paris, generally they want French wine and they want French food. So how would you typify the clientele here at uh, Cheval d'Or at the moment? We have a very diverse clientele, a lot of Parisians and people from all over the world. So yes, a lot. We've had that comment several times, like, you guys don't have a lot of French wine on the menu. Mm-hmm. And, um, Yes, it is a bit destabilizing, but I always tell people, no worries, you're still going to have something great to drink tonight. It's just not going to be French, you know. <laughs> and when they do specifically want a French wine, we do give them a French there wine. There are French wines. There are French wines. Yeah. So it's, there's, there's, there's a bit of everything. But yes, we do like to um, 
it is something that people bring to our attention often. We're getting more and more American guests, I think, especially with the Le Fooding Award. <laughs> Shout out to Le Fooding. So, you know, I think that's also going to maybe change the dynamic what, what a little. What was that award? We got Meilleur Regalade. How would you translate Regalade in English, Erin? You're great with words. Uh, okay. uh, like Regalade. Good time. On yeah, good time. And that, that to us is great. Like, you come here, you have a great time. But, yeah. um, it's not something... Can't argue with it. Yeah, yeah. can't argue with yeah. it. We haven't had any um, unpleasant experiences, to be honest. People have been quite happy with, uh, with what we do because they can't compare it to anything, yeah. really. Um, do, they, do they give, like, a best terrible time award? <laughs> <laughs> they should, yeah. after, after giving us the yeah. best time award. And then I know in the interval between working at the Rigmarole, and taking over Cheval d'Or, you were doing uh, event work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, We Are Ona, is that yes. right? Which is a, what is We Are Ona? So We Are Ona is a collective that sets up um, ephemeral experiences all over the world. So basically pop-up restaurants um, for two weeks or two months at a time. And I joined We Are Ona when it was just getting started here in France. Mm-hmm. I had already done a pop-up with them in Portugal when they did their first We Are Ona pop-up. It was in Costa de Caparica in Portugal. So Luis and I had worked there, collaborated with them. And then I joined the team when my son was seven months old. And it, it was during COVID. So it was a very exciting time to, to be a part of We Are Ona's birth. Um, well, you were able to do events during COVID? Or was it? So yeah, private events okay. at homes. I don't know if I should be saying <laughs> Exactly. Um, Strictly but, illegal events. <laughs> so no, but no, during, during COVID, we did um, baskets. So the okay. chefs, uh, they did okay. videos mm-hmm. and they created menus that people can, can do at home. I remember this because at the time I was working as a sommelier for Bruno Verjou at Stable, and at one point he started doing baskets as well. So yeah. Which, happily, I had almost nothing to do with that, <laughs> but it looked like a huge. Yeah, it was a lot of work. Yeah, um, sort of humiliating as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it and all of this just to show um, the extent to which people went to be able to survive and give still create experiences for people like culinary experiences. So I was also a part of setting up their private chef program so right when everything opened up again um, private chefing became something that people were looking towards especially companies etc so I helped set that up and then own a pop-ups that was extremely fun it was a great time but I did miss wine a lot it was nice working with Luca because he's he's a great sommelier a lot of people forget that because he's at the head of we are Ona, but he's an amazing sommelier so we had a great time serving great wines at the pop-ups, but it really gave me that envie to get back into the into more the wine, the wine scene. And I realized I'm a bit classic. I like restaurants. Uh, <laughs> I, I like spaces where you see returning customers and you create experiences and then kind of top off the experience based on the previous one. And I like seeing evolution in a space. Yeah. In the short time we've been here, Chevador has already changed so much just by bringing in, you know, um, Luis and uh, Hans, they, they love Chine. Uh, I don't know how to say it. They love vintage shopping and oh, okay. they yeah, have yeah. an attention to detail that's so special. So Hans has totally recreated the space in this little time he's been here. So there's something to me very exciting about that and long lasting. Like our dream is to make of Cheval d'Or an institution. I want mm-hmm. my kids to grow up here. Yeah. I want I want them to see what we're creating. Like, like a certain well-known restaurant that was further south here in Bellevue. Like, yeah, you know, like the, yeah, those the are yeah. the Bahatan. Yeah. You know, when I when the, the fact that Hakel is still in the kitchen there mm-hmm. and 
it still exists and yeah it's just so warm and comforting it's know? definitely true that you know in the there, there's this trend there's this uh you know you see all around us of the popification of everything you know everything becomes it becomes a one-off event and what gets lost in that is this notion of the restaurant as part of a community and of the of the of the, of the space feeling lived in and uh Exactly. Yeah. The, end of the, the whole experience kind of gaining in maturity and in precision and in yeah, dependability. Exactly. Like yeah. it, it's it's exactly what you said. Seeing that evolution, that maturity, and then, you know, there are certain places. I'm I'm a I'm a woman of habit when it comes to even food. You know, the, the fact that someone can come here, and be very disappointed that there's that the seasons change so we don't have that specific thing on the menu that's so beautiful to me you know that you love something that much or the comfort of knowing you can come and that's what you're going to order um and i made a trip to taiwan with robert and jessica when i was at the rigmarole and um one thing that changed my life was seeing restaurants that serve only one product mm -hmm. every day yeah. over and over um and that really changed and affected me um, because I'm someone that I don't my attention for something you know I go I, I tend to to jump over uh, steps and I want to get from point A to point B rather quickly but taking the time and enjoying the failures and enjoying that time where you're not perfect I think is so important and um, I'm trying to be conscious of that here in Chevaldo, um and giving myself time and seeing things evolve, um, and especially our wine program. You know, when we opened and the references, every day we receive a new reference or that Taiki um, is able to make contact with the winemaker or that, you know, it gives us so much to look forward to because putting something on the menu, deciding what to age, these are all things I've realized that's where my pleasure is. Um, and being able to tell the story and pay attention to it to where our wine is going, why we have it, and who we want to share it with. I think that's that's what makes it special to me. Because otherwise, I'm not a big drinker. And that's what's always kind of outcasted me from the rest. I've never been able to like party for too long or stay long enough to be on the winemaker's like friend side. You know, so it's always I'm always like that little like nerd that no one knows that, you know, sent the email but you haven't been to the wine. So it's always been like this weird relationship and I'm like, do I belong here? Do I belong in this community? Um but yeah I do. In my own way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of I mean I hope this doesn't come across as sexist, but I think there's a lot of women in the wine industry who probably feel the same way in the sense of not wanting to have to drink a Magnum by oneself in order to continue hanging out yeah. and make those relationships with the winemakers. You know, you see it everywhere in the industry. There's like this pressure to kind of take part in this hedonism in order to have those yeah. moments of connection with your providers. You or know? just being everywhere, you know, yeah. like you said, there's a always a pop-up there's always someone cooking there's always this so you know that i always felt the need to be present at every function and and now i'm 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 learning that the key to being present is having a community so yeah. if i can't go taiki will go or luis will go or you know or we'll do it in a different way so i'm i'm it's the maturity it's what you alluded to like time has really done some beautiful things for me in my wine career and in my vision concerning my role yeah. and the effect I want to have in our community and the legacy I want to leave for my kids when they think about what I did and what I shared with them. Um, Would it be fair to, to call you like a, a lifelong immigrant? Yeah, to some for extent. sure. I mean, like, you know, you're saying you moved, to, you moved to America when you were three 
and then and then you know lived there for 14 years as an immigrant to America, and then moved to Paris, uh, and have been living here as an immigrant to Paris essentially. That's like, like, like the myself. best compliment yeah. I think. I'm a lifelong immigrant. I'm gonna but, use that. Right? But, <laughs> but, but, it's, but as someone who's moved, moved around a lot, do you find yourself as having found a home here in Paris? For sure. In America, I was never given the opportunity to even feel American. I came to Paris because of my accent. People identify me automatically as American. I always felt very Cape Verdean, but the first time I went to Cape Verde after so many years, I realized I am, but not as Cape Verdean as, you know, there's different levels of Cape Verdean where you've lived. So Paris is where um, I was, I, sh I truly began being myself, you know, not thinking about, you know, what my family thought or what career decisions, you know, I lived my life here in Paris. I had my children here. I met the love of my life here. I. I, I have a restaurant here, like, I'm here, but it's so funny because every day I'm reminded that I'm not French. And it's not in a negative way, but like, it's either I'm pissed off and when I'm mad, I can't speak French properly, you know, or you, you just, I still like am enamored with this city's architecture. You know, yeah. I still feel like a lifelong immigrant, like yeah. you said, because I'm still not used to it. Um, I, there are so many aspects of my life and I, and I always tell myself it'll always be like this because yeah. I'm never going to really belong anywhere. I always used to be very jealous of my husband because he was born and raised in the same community. So he has this confidence because his friends have always been his friends. So he's never had to go to a city and make new friends. He doesn't depend on new friendships to have that confidence or a new family. Whereas I have always been trying to find confirmation and acceptance wherever I go. So yeah. I'm kind of like a chameleon, I, I adapt. So like when I was younger, oh, I don't think they'll like the way I talk. So I'll, I'll, I'll change my accent. Oh, I'm gonna say I was raised in Manhattan instead of like Newark, New Jersey. You know, I've always had the opportunity to not be myself because I've always been in different places. And now Paris, it's finally become that place where you know me, you've known me for many years now. So like, and it's my home, it's, it's, and it's where I wanna be. And I feel more Parisian than anything. Yeah. And so Cheval d'Or becomes kind of the medium of expression for the experiences leading exactly. up to it. Yeah. And that acceptance of diversity. You know, Cheval d'Or for me is proof that you don't have to be one thing. You can be this mix and amalgamation of, yeah. of that's what our dishes are, you know. No no dish is Chinese or or really only French, you know. He he makes tortellini and stuffs it with tofu and ricotta, you know, <laughs> and I serves think, it. I think, yeah, like when I when I when I first come here, I guess I read something and I'm not sure where it was, but some of the you know, the early press and it was saying that the restaurant had been inspired by French Chinese restaurants of the nineteen seventies or something like that. And I was like, well, okay. And then of course you get here and like the first thing you received here was like gazpacho and I was like yeah. <laughs> Okay, no, I guess that's out the window. Exactly, exactly. Right. You can't really like and that's that's what's great. And that's always been me. Like, you know, when people are like, Oh, are you Cape Yes, I I am Cape Verdean. However, there's always this but that I wanna add, like, oh did you know like I've spent seventeen but you we don't always have time to break down, or, or sometimes we're tired of having to break down. Do you have like a, any culinary memories associated with your Cape Verdean origins? Oh yes, so growing up in America, um, there were two things that my mother always did, is speak Creole to me, which is our local dialect, which is now an official language, and she always cooked Cape Verdean food. So I, I've grown up, and I did not grow up in a Cape Verdean community in America. Really? So most Cape Verdeans are in Rhode Island, Boston, um, Connecticut area. Uh, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and I lived in a couple years in New York, and then I went to boarding school in Pennsylvania. So I've always been the only Cape Verdean. And, 
in my time in America, most people didn't even know what it was or where it was. So those were two things I held very dearly. Um, and I always grew up very proud of my heritage, actually. I never really rejected it. And that's something I try to pass on to my children because when you think about it, they're third generation. So their dad wasn't born in Cape Verde, their mother wasn't raised there. They're born in France, but their parents lived in different countries. So I'm always like, how do I explain to my children who they are? And I don't have to explain anything. They just have to live it. And that's what I've accepted over time. But um, it's not easy. I don't know, just to explain to listeners that some of the background, the, the background noise that you may hear at the moment <laughs> is the, the kitchen arriving, someone's child, and they're driving. <laughs> <laughs> Cheval d'Or is yeah, always full of people. Yeah, it's full of life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and uh, so I didn't realize we also have the Pennsylvania connection in common mm-hmm. as well. So you, you said you, were, you grew up a little bit in Bucks County? Yes, so I and went to boarding school, um, high school in Newtown, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. in Bucks County, a Quaker friend's yeah. school. Uh, for four Long years, I got a scholarship. Quakers, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which really, um, I grew up in a very. It, it was the time of my life. I mean, I went from Newark, New Jersey, which is the hood, <laughs> to this uh, beautiful campus. It's very big college, Bucks County. Yeah, it was for me. I was always like in this um, Anne of Green. Yeah. What's that? What's that book they made us read? Anne of Green Gables. You know, I, I never read that one. Yeah, I always felt like. You know, do you know? Um, do you know Chris Santini from uh, Burgundy? Yes. Yeah, he's he's from Bucks County. He's from Bucks County. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Another another That's Pennsylvania so funny. wine guy. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> Great. Well, yeah. So yeah. it's it's a place that really. Um, I don't know any winemakers from Newark, New Jersey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, New Jersey. Yes. Uh, New Jersey. Yeah. We do know one winemaker. Uh, uh, Heather, uh, Pierre from Le Petit Gimios' wife, girlfriend, or girlfriend, I believe, uh, she is from New Jersey. Oh. Not sure which part of New Jersey, though, not Newark. Probably not Newark. (laughs) (laughs) So all the New Jersey winemakers, give me a shout out when when you want. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) But welcome on the wine list here at Cheval d'Or. To return to the the wine program here at Cheval d'Or, and it's more international focus. Do you find among Parisians, are they more or less open to ordering wines that aren't French, at least compared to international clients? They're quite open. Mm-hmm. The, the guests we have, they really put themselves in our, in our hands, but also like we try to set, set up the playing fields for that. You know what I mean? Um, so for example, one thing that was really uh, maybe destabilizing for guests is that we didn't make the separation between whites and reds mm-hmm. on our menu purposely because it makes people ask us questions. And we're happy to let you guys pick whatever you want, but we love giving you our input because there is a lot of work that is put into deciding what to put on the menu, what's tasting great. And we do have things that we're super excited to share with with our guests. So we oftentimes like set up things in a way that makes you talk to us. Because one thing we fi- I find with a lot of like um, locals, which is normal, because I'm kind of like that, is we know what we want we know what we like like so we get to a restaurant so we kind of want to cut that and be like whoa so when someone opens our menu they're like actually i don't i don't even know what's white and red kind of thing so um so to be honest in our experience of course when you're you're of a certain age and you're used to having things a certain way um it can be uncomfortable when you get here and maybe you're not drinking what ideally you would want to be drinking but it's very seldom that someone is not happy they're always going to maybe have something to say but it makes for interesting conversation and opening them up to other references and other restaurants in paris because 
that's the point is to recommend other places. Recently we had um we hosted uh, Elena Pantelioni this week from Domen La Stopa here and we did a six course menu vertical tasting and it was incredible because we were able to open wines, serve them by the glass that we can't do very often to um, a guest list not made up of uh, wine professionals. We thought it was going to attract more wine professionals, but actually we had regular guests. And were there a lot of people who just wanted to come to Cheval d'Or and they didn't realize there was yeah, a special there, theme so venue? Yeah, so purposely, <laughs> like, I did leave it. I took yeah. all the reservations that were made online and I left some and they arrived and I was like, oh, so you didn't know there was a, you okay. know, but again, I set up the playing field yeah. for that and I do it on purpose because I know you know, it's exciting for us as a team, and then you do want to make people discover. Was it a lot of explaining what orange wine yes. is that night? So a lot of explaining <laughs> a lot of yeah. things. So, um, But it was explaining, and that's kind of what I like, mm -hmm. to be honest. You do repeat yourself a lot, but when you're talking to someone who doesn't have that information, who doesn't know the winemaker, and she was here, um, it's, it was exciting for me, you know, um, focusing in on one region, and one region only for a whole night mm -hmm. was was relaxing in a way because I also want to zone in on it I also want to get to the details I want to talk about the difference between Macchione and you know so it was really fun and it was so nice that it it was also kind of I'm gonna say regular for lack of a better, better term guests and not only professionals of our industry because um, it was a really special night I think one challenge or at least you know in terms of just the nuts and bolts of how to keep a restaurant profitable is that when you want to really challenge people and break out of the kind of just a champagne burgundy situation is you still sometimes find yourself with clients who really do want to spend a lot of money yeah you know and no then, so so that's that's the, with the natural wine world in the first place it's difficult yeah. to find stuff that that, that is, is high value enough to satisfy those clients exactly so yes yeah, so when you get yeah. we do get guests like that yeah. it is what it is you know yeah. <laughs> it's it, a delicate conversation it's a delicate conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it, and it and it is what it is we've had we've had a couple of those but to just put out some names there like you know when they want you know a big roan and I give them my version of a big role, and I, I yeah. bust out the Domaine Villeneuve, Stanislaw Wallet. It's, it's, it's yeah. often never big enough. Yeah, it's never big enough, that. you know, but yeah. um, you, we're not out here to please everyone, but at least it's an opportunity to show people where we stand and what mm -hmm. we think of wine and which wines we do think are of high value, and that high value isn't always translated by price, but we know that you know, some people want to spend that, and we want people to spend that. Of course, yeah. you never want to, if someone wants to drop three yeah. or 400 on a bottle, you never want yeah. to be like, sorry, man. Exactly. You know, so we, we we've max had out people, at 60. Yeah. <laughs> people are like, why don't yeah. you have champagne? We don't have champagne on the menu at the moment. Really? Yeah, we only have Petnat, and again, it's kind of like the Burgundy issue. Those are very special regions to me, and... Um, I do find champagnes a little annoying to navigate. Yeah, know? so it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a picky subject for Taiki and I, so we're, we're taking our time with it. And um, soon, but you know, everyone's like, the, they're like, Christmas is coming. You don't have champagne on the menu, <laughs> you know. So they're they're because you're also running a business. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, day, there but, is that. Yeah. Um, but this is um, the beauty of working towards being able to express yourself in your own space. Mm -hmm. It's about also going at a pace that convenes you, even if it's at a bit of a cost, and it's going to take a bit more time. But I can I can finally do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. At a pace that suits you. Yeah. yeah. At a pace that suits me. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz when we get there and when you guys see our champagne list it's 
going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll definitely be coming back to that. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll be excited to have you. And thank you for the support, Aaron. Gotta say that. My, my pleasure. I, mean, <laughs> that's, that's, I was. I mean, I, I remember meeting you for the first time at the Ravenloft, just being absolutely dazzled by your command of the room, by your command of the of the, of the communication about what you were serving, and. Uh, I'm, I've always had a, you've always had like a really, really uh, a gracious touch in, you know, with dealing with clients, <laughs> even annoying clients like me. You know, <laughs> no, not annoying at all. Anyway, thank you so much for having me around. And, thank you uh, for having me. I can't wait me. to come back uh, and have another meal. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for having me, and thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> well, this, this, this may be the last episode of this season, but I think this season, I mean, I'll probably end up just doing another another, another few more episodes here. But and this is so fun. Like, you know, like, what you're doing is what I'm always curious about. In having a bit of insight from wine professionals and, like, restaurant owners, because getting into a bit of their everyday mm-hmm. is, is, so, is so interesting. So, well, so even among... among us professionals, you know, yeah. like we never get the chance to just sit down and talk without necessarily drinking, without necessarily exactly. having a bunch of winemakers <laughs> around us, without having everyone like partying and serving food and moving. You know. Yeah. And so, it, I mean, to be honest, I've really loved this podcast adventure mostly for that reason because it does create this little space where you have a completely different dialogue exactly. with, with people that you've known for years. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity. Oh. Thank you, thank you for, uh, it's really, you're giving me the opportunity, and uh, I hope it's been not so boring for the listeners as well.